Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Right. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio um, for our very special May Day special on the 1st of May. So... Um, before I like to announce um, what's coming up, um, I'd just like to introduce you to all our presenters. Um, my name is Jacob, and we have... Uh, Zane, hello. And Megan, yeah. hello. So the full team, mm. as, u- as usual, in, um, in this time of COVID-19. Um, now, um, before I um, announce what's coming up, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you um, from the Cooler Nation, um, I like to pay our respect um, to elders um, past and present um, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land and FreeCR supports um, the fight back um, for, for Aboriginal sovereignty and um, and, the, and land rights. Yeah. Right. So this is a pretty, um, we're, this, we're having our program, as I said, on a pretty special time and May Day is probably one of the more significant kind of days, um, you know, for left-wing activists all around the world because it's, you know, um, Zane, do you want to sort of start by telling us what May Day is about? Well, let's go back, way back before the time of Karl Marx and the workers' movements and trade unions. The origins of May Day are, in fact, a pagan fertility festival to celebrate May Day, you'll notice, is not long after Easter, and both of these things uh, celebrate in the Northern Hemisphere the end of the uh, winter months and the coming of spring and all of the associated fertility and happiness and excitement because going back a long time, winter was associated with death and pestilence and spring and summer were associated with much better times and grain harvest. Fast forward to the uh, late 1800s, and it was a coalition of US and Canadian trade unions that set the date of May 1, 1886, as a day of strike action in support of the 80-hour day. And that that is the origins of May Day. In Chicago, a crowd of up to 80,000 people was attacked by police who gunned down six workers and in a subsequent protest, 11 more were killed. And seven anarchist scapegoats were arrested and four of them were hanged. So those are some of the uh, long origins of May Day. And then the more recent origins of May Day as a workers' day. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think a very kind of important history. Um, and even today, May Day is looking Despite the fact that, um, you know, workers, um, are being 
um, despite the fact that we're living in this kind of age where we're not able to organise mass protests per se, um, May Day is still going to be quite a significant day for the workers' struggle. Um, in fact, in the United States, um, which is um, where um, the COVID-19 crisis is, um, I think, hitting workers the hardest, um, especially when you consider that COVID-19 has over a million cases in the United States alone, um, when you consider the fact that there is this right-wing push to reopen and push um, workers um, into unsafe kind of working conditions, etc., um, and then there's there, there's a whole issue with uh, of big billionaires, um, company, um, corporations like the likes of Amazon and Walmart, who you know in a sense employ a lot of these so-called essential workers. Um, in the United States, um, May Day is going to be marked by a lot of those workers organising to take strike action, walking off the job to demand better working conditions, um, better um, health and um, safety. And it's, yeah, it's probably going to be, um, it's going to be a big day in itself. And then in Sydney, um, there's going to be uh, a car convoy, you know, demanding better jobs, um, demanding health and um, safety in this age of, of COVID-19 and also fighting for the right to do a general strike. I think it's very interesting that this strike is happening in the United States and these mass walk-offs, and it shows that one of the peculiar aspects of these COVID-19 shutdowns is that it's almost like a dress run or a practice run for going on strike, and people have just been staying at home and self-isolating the bosses in the government saying, right, now it's time to go back to work. And it's a funny dialectic where the workers can kind of say, well, hang on, we've just been sitting at home for weeks and uh, we might do a little bit more of that and go on strike. So it's a peculiar thing that the idea of a strike is no longer in the minds of many people, this abstract thing that workers used to do back in the 1970s or, you know, a lot of people don't have real world experience of a walk-off for a strike. But now that people have been self-isolating, it's like, ah, this isn't too hard, is it? We just withdraw our labour and sit at home and watch the bosses scream for us to come back. I think it's really interesting. Um, This whole workers' solidarity in the time of COVID-19, there is a vast potential here uh, to have, you know, this whole uh, concept of solidarity just go through the masses and be understood a lot better because it's affecting a lot of people. In fact, you know, it's affecting a lot of people who traditionally sit back and say, well, you know, my job is secure. Um, I, I have what I need. I don't need to join a union. I don't need to work in solidarity with my fellow workers because everything's fine and dandy, you know, even though maybe it's not. Um, but it's really hit hard in that, uh, you know, say in the US and here in Australia as well, um, essential workers are not being given the things that they need to not put them in danger. So they're not being given adequate personal protective equipment. Um, and they're not being given, um, you know, the opportunity to ma- make sure that they are well protected uh, against something that's going to endanger their lives. And I think that's a real wake up call for a lot of people. And I think um, hopefully these Mayday stri- these Mayday walkouts uh, in the US are something that's going to make people see that workers organising together 
uh, is an absolutely important thing. It's, it makes sure that the balance of power is not just with the employer. And here in Australia, I've noted um, that there's been quite a jump in the um, the number of people joining their unions. I think that whole awareness of the work, the power of workers and the power of worker solidarity is rising in many countries because of COVID-19. So hopefully the May 1st, um, you know, walkouts are going to be something that really solidifies this in people's mind. As Zane said, the idea of those strikes is now very close because this walkout is pretty much the same thing and will allow people to see the power of workers, not just, you know, see it as this academic thing. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that the COVID-19 crisis kind of poses, and this has been kind of a recurring kind of theme um, for our program for the past several weeks, um, but what it shows is how essential workers are to to the economy. It's not the bosses, it's not the CEOs, it's not the managers, it's actually the workers doing the hard labour that is keeping society running. It's all those public transport workers, um, it's all those warehouse workers who are distributing the goods, it's all those workers at the supermarket, they're the ones who are keeping um, society essentially running. Um, oh, and let's not forget the doctors, the nurses, um, the hospital workers, all those, um, those things are considered uh, uh, central for the running of our society in this um, in this pandemic, and I think what is a clear issue is the fact that the direction of what the, um, what these workers collectively do is guided by the profits of a of a of a small minority, which is the ca- um, the parasitic capitalists. Um, especially when you consider the fact um, one uh, you know one thing I've I've been doing quite a bit of. Um, is, you know, I've been doing a lot of um, online order ordering. And I guess in this kind of age, um, you know, where everyone's staying isolated, there's all the likes of Amazon are making massive profits off this crisis while not even implementing basic work, um, safe, uh, um, safe work measures. And at the same time, um, I think, actually, I want to change the topic slightly just a bit, but there was also um, quite an amazing story two weeks ago of um of these workers at a uh, at a factory that produced um PPOE masks who spent over two to three weeks sleeping in the factory um because they wanted to get um they wanted to get the equipment done on time and i think that shows you know if um we um you know that uh, i think that dem- that story kind of demonstrates that workers should be the ones to actually make the democratic decisions over what gets produced and when um i mean the, the kind of downside to that kind of story is I think, you know, it's a bit, it's, I think it says something that those workers were put into a position where they, you know, they forgoed, um, personal contact with their family, uh, um, their loved ones and so on to, um, and made that sort of level of commitment to build those products when, you know, the reality is there should be more funding, um, and there should be more funding for those factories to be able to increase the number of workers that can work at such a factory. Mm. Yes, it sounds like uh, they were Stakhanovites, and the Stakhanovites in the Soviet Union were workers who wanted to do their extra bit to contribute to the uh, planned economy sort of quotas. So they worked extra hard and tried to exceed their quotas and get all their work done on time. And they're a bit controversial because some people would say that it, it could uh, 
glorify um, being hyper-exploited or working really hard. But other people would argue, no, no, these people are just really committed to the to the social good and they were working really hard to ensure that. And I think the example you talk about of the mask workers, clearly they've got the needs of society in mind when they're working those really long shifts and sleeping at the factory. Yeah. And I think another thing that um, those stories kind of reflect, I think, because, you know, even under the Soviet Union, um, it was, you know, you didn't necessarily get the best quality wages and there wasn't necessarily much means to be able to accumulate um, wealth the same way um, that, you know, workers in the United States would be able to do. I think it's um it's really interesting in this time, um, this whole, whole uh, raising the awareness of how important workers are and how important the worker input is into the economy is really interesting because at the same time I'm noticing this um, this increased awareness of billionaires being basically parasites and this whole uh, you know previously billionaires were seen as these kind of these are the people who made it to the top they picked up their bootstraps they worked hard they worked smart and here they are at the top of their game kind of thing these are the people these are the entrepreneurs that we should be looking at to you know to emulate and to to get to etc there was this kind of shine to billionaires i think in a lot of uh, the community's minds and now after this whole covid-19 i think that shine for a lot of people you know just the general community has diminished a lot of people are seeing you know jeff bezos himself uh he could his his worth would decrease absolutely minutely if like a tiny tiny amount if he just gave his workers all of the uh you know the the sick leave that he people have this now increased awareness of the fact that billionaires are not the people they seem to be they're not these entrepreneurs who pick themselves up by their bootstraps you know these are the sort of people we should aim to be they're seen for the hoarders that they are they're seen for the greedy people that they are who can't even give their own workers adequate um protective gear and adequate sick leave yet at the same time they've put their hand out to the governments for the bailouts and as I was talking about you know Jeff Bezos could decrease his worth his net worth a tiny tiny fraction just by giving all of his workers adequate sick leave giving all of his workers adequate protective gear in this time and yet he won't and yet he's still asking for a handout and Mm. these are the sorts of people that society doesn't need. Society needs our workers. Society doesn't need our billionaires. Hmm. I think another another example I heard in the UK is I heard the story of a of a nurse um, who was actually you know semi retired. who was actually working double shifts, um, not because she wants the money, um, but because um, she sees it as um, in the public good to be able to do. Um, um, that work in this time of um, COVID-19 um, in, with the health crisis that the UK currently experiences. And I think that, you know, stories like this, I mean, not necessarily that we want to necessarily glorify the fact that, you know, workers are putting themselves in those positions um, because the reality is we should be, you know, um, taking aim at the government and um, the capitalist class for allowing such conditions to happen. But it does put a counter to this whole myth um that um, the capitalists um, 
ideology likes to put forward that, you know, if we didn't have the capitalist system um, and if people weren't motivated by profit, um, every workers would just be lazy and they wouldn't want to do anything. And I think, you know, that that is just, a, I think, the what these crises actually show that that is actually a bold-faced lie. Totally, because those nurses doing double shifts are literally risking their lives. I saw a thing going around the other day that over 100 NHS workers have been killed by COVID-19 over the last, you know, month and a half. And so it's absolutely the case that those workers are risking their life for their fellow human. And there's no amount of money that can make that a, a, a you know, a, a tempting financial transaction. Hmm. Um, I am work in the health industry and I'm seeing it firsthand. Um, people who are in private practice, people who are retired or about to retire. Uh, my boss has resumed urgent surgeries uh, at a public hospital, uh, you know, that public hospital he was winding down at, but he's resumed urgent surgeries because he's needed. And he, and he does not need the money. It's not, he's not doing this for any sense of, you know, um, building his career or anything like that. He is literally doing it because he's needed and because, you know, it's the right thing to do. This whole idea that workers are lazy without the incentives is a complete myth. And it needs to be, you know, the kibosh needs to be put into this myth immediately because this is one of the ways that, uh, that employees and corporations uh, control their workers. They need to be, you know, big daddy to us because we can't do anything ourselves. This, we can't self-organize apparently. You know, we, we need incentives like money and et cetera to, to be productive. It's a total, total myth and we know it. We need to make the community know it and, you know, the corporations know it. Anyway, um, I just want to kind of, um, We'll move on, I guess, um, from this discussion a bit. I just want to announce what we have coming up for um, Green Left Radio. And I might just play a quick announcement. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. May the 1st, exercising for your rights activity at 8 Hour Monument, Corner Victoria and Ligon Street in Carlton. Masks. Black and red clothes and posters optional. Social distancing in force. 5.30pm Friday. Celebrating International Workers' Day. Leave no worker behind. A 3CR supporter. Power in the land. Power in the hand of the worker. It all amounts to nothing. Together we don't stand there. 
You're, you're listening to Green Left Radio and it's whatever time it is right now um, because this is, has been pre-recorded and we don't actually have an accurate t- um, sense of what t- what the time will be when it goes to air. Um, but to announce what we have coming up on the program, um, we're going to be playing a recording uh, of, a, of, a, of a series of speeches from a workers' rights forum that was organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance um, titled, um, I think it was, yeah, titled Workers Fight Back, No Worker Left Behind. Um, and it features a number of speakers, including Tim Kennedy, um, who's the um, National Secretary for the UWU, um, David Ball, um, who is Assistant Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia, and then we have Helen Marsman-Smith, um, who we've had actually um, featured on our program before, um, who is a NTU branch president of the Charles Stewart University and a member of Socialist Alliance. So yeah, basically they're going to be, um, they gave this, um, we're going to be playing a recording of this online forum. All right. Comrades, I think we might get started because it's 6.30 and we've got a very full agenda. So can I welcome everybody to our forum tonight? Um, it's the forum's called, oh, sorry, my name's Sue Bull and I'm from um, Socialist Alliance and Green Left Weekly and we're the ones running the, the forum. And the forum's entitled Workers Fight Back, No Worker Left Behind. Um, and we thought we'd sort of try and have this because, of course, it's one of the major issues facing everybody at the moment. We're all desperately trying to work out how we can get people back to work eventually in a safe manner, but also... Um, how we're going to end up not having to um, be the ones who pay the bill in some sort of disastrous way at the end of the day. So that's where the forum comes from. So let's by acknowledging the land that I'm meeting on. I think all of you are, are going to be on lands all over the place. So if you feel the need to acknowledge your land um, before you speak, it's fine by me. But um, I want to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Wadarong and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This was stolen land and always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So thank you everybody for attending. It looks like we're gonna have a terrific roll up. Um, We've got three speakers for you tonight who come from quite diverse and different backgrounds. Um, We've quite um, an array of things to say and and, um, interesting, diverse areas to represent. Our first speaker tonight is going to be Tim Kennedy. Now, Tim is the National Secretary of the United Workers' Union, which, as many comrades will realise, is the union that was an amalgamation of um, two unions and is almost a super union now, and I'll let Tim say more about that if he wants to. Um, Our second speaker is David Ball who's the Deputy Secretary of the Victorian branch of the Maritime Union of Australia. And, of course, comrades would also be aware that the MUA has been involved in some quite big disputes throughout the um, whole um, COVID-19 period, uh, not least of which has been the solidarity that they've shown towards workers on the Ruby Princess. But I'll, I'll let David fill us in on those. And uh, last but not least of the formal speakers anyway, is Helen Masterton-Smith. Now, Helen is uh, a member of, uh, sorry, she's branch president of the Charles Sturt University, which is on the Albury-Wodonga border. Um, she's also going to be speaking on behalf of Socialist Alliance, but 
We wanted Helen to speak because, of course, you may be aware that there's lots of things happening in the NTEU area. Um, and indeed, there's um, talk of deals being done with regard to jobs, pay and all sorts of things. So um, it's very relevant from the point of view of those of us, who, many of whom are working in the public sector or in the education um, more generally. So there are three speakers. Now, they're going to each speak for 15 minutes. Um, and if it's okay with each of you, I'll just sort of give you a little sign or maybe mention in the um, um, chat box that um, it might be time um, to wind up. But um, feel free in the 15 minutes to sort of present what you like. We'll then go to discussion. We've got um, generally what we try and do is we I take um, contributions in, in groups of three. And those of you who are making a contribution have got three minutes each. So... Once again, I'll indicate in the chat box, pardon me, and give you the wind-up. Um, so if you'd like to speak in discussion, use the chat box, because with a really big group like this, it's not clear that I'll see everybody with their hands up. So, um, yeah, so hopefully that will work out fine. Uh, we're aiming at a forum that will go for about two hours. We certainly won't go longer, um, but that's what we're aiming for, because it is a work night and... Plenty of people are working online if they're not working in person. So, Tim, do you mind starting off? Thank you. Okay. Well, I'm going to go silent now and over to you. Thanks very much, Sue. And also, thanks very much, Sue Bolton, for inviting me on to speak to you all tonight. Um, we live in uh, extraordinary times. Only about a month ago, I didn't have much of an idea about Zoom, and now I think I spend most of my life staring at the Brady Bunch type picture on a, on a screen. Um, the reason uh, I thought I'd, I'll make a few comments. I also know at the end of the day that if I talk too much, you'll lose interest. So I'll, I'll just do a quick around the grounds about who the United Workers Union is uh, and what we're trying to do in the sectors uh, uh, that we're organising to make certain that uh, every worker counts and that we actually take uh, the opportunity of this crisis to see if we can rebuild some worker power in this country. Um, United Workers Union is a new union. Sue alluded to the fact we've only just been created. We came into being on Armistice Day uh, last year in 2019, and uh, we've it hardly got going, and we were hit with the bushfires in this country, uh, and then we stagger out of the bushfires and we're hit with COVID-19, uh, one of the most significant crises to hit this country in a long, long time. And what it revealed to us very quickly given the workers that we represent, is that the system in which we operate in is fundamentally brittle and it's cooked and it's cactus and it's completely conked out, uh, and that we need to try and find ways to organise uh, to make certain that workers, once again, have their voice heard at the centre of the political debate in this country. Uh, to give you a sense of who we represent, we were the result of two unions, one called the National Union of Workers and one called the United Voice uh, amalgamating late last year, which basically means that we're a, we're a large private sector union, but with a big public sector base of about 30%. So we represent workers uh, across the spectrum that were impacted uh, by this, by this health crisis, which I would say right now is moving from a health crisis to a fundamentally an economic crisis. But the workers that we represent are workers in care. Uh, we're in that part of the economy, mainly feminised industries, so aged care, uh, early child education and care, uh, home care, 
uh, people on the front line. We also represent workers in various parts of Australia in hospitals uh, as well, uh, hospital workers, paramedics in various parts of Australia. So we, we were very much representing workers at the, uh, the danger end and the pointy end of this crisis when it broke out. We also represent workers who make certain that the things that we require, uh, toilet paper comes to mind, uh, is on the shelves for people to access. And we represent workers in logistics, uh, in food manufacturing, uh, dairy, poultry. All those places have continued to work throughout this crisis. In actual fact, our warehouse workers have been working flat out. And uh, the two biggest, the uh, uh, the two biggest employers that we're exposed to, and the and the two companies that really do very well in this country, Woolworths and Coles have been doing very well through this crisis uh, as, as they've been uh, profiting quite well. Then we have a huge group of workers who have been absolutely uh, smashed by this crisis. So we represent casino workers around Australia. Uh, in two days alone, 9,000 of our members were stood down and, without, uh, and we were able to use some industrial muscle to get them paid right up until almost uh, the JobKeeper thing kicked in. And I'll, I can talk about the JobKeeper if we get a chance to. But, we, you know, 9,000 people losing jobs, many of them are workers who will not qualify for the JobKeeper. The promise of JobKeeper has, the reality of it is, is fundamentally problematic. Uh, we also represent workers who are connected to uh, retail, uh, so the consumer base of the economy, uh, both in um, manufacturing, uh, uh, logistics and also parts of the food uh, sector, food delivery service. So we've got three big parts of our workforces that were impacted. One's are where health and safety is primary and, and they're at the pointy end. Uh, at the other end where health and safety is important, but they actually kept uh, the supply going to make certain that we could actually get the things that we need and make the foods that we need. We represent pharmaceutical workers who have been working flat out through this crisis. So our union's response was, well, you know, we've always known that uh, the status quo has been fundamentally unequal in this country. Uh, this crisis has revealed to us it's fundamentally untenable. Uh, and this moment, this rupture, uh, requires us to step up to the plate and see what we can do to advance a, an alternative vision about where workers uh, can actually get a better say and that no one's left behind. And so we came up with some key demands. And a lot of those key demands go around three major ideas, income, ownership, and investment. And in short, uh, what we were talking about in those three strains was this, is that we need to make certain that uh, that your ability to function in society is not always has to be tied to performing labour. Okay, having a paid job. There should be a guaranteed income for everyone in this country. Uh, we note that uh, a government up until about two months ago said it was impossible to afford an increase in new start has now turned that into about 1100 a fortnight for this period of time. Uh, we also thought that we did not want to maintain the privilege that workers and people generally came into this crisis coming out of this crisis. We believe there was a, change, a chance to change that. So we had two claims that we want to organise around. One is not only an incomes guarantee, and it should be at least at the minimum rate of pay of 750 a week, but a jobs guarantee. That was 100% government backed uh, and that it went directly to the worker. So we're about trying to say how do we move the share 
of, of wealth back towards people who can actually benefit from it. The other element about that was uh, in terms of income, we have, there are other elements that are important that make up uh, how people survive. And one is we have universal health care in this country, but it doesn't apply universally. And we believe everyone in this country, when the crisis struck, should have access to universal health care. That people who uh, need security of housing, so there'll be a moratorium or a rent strike until we got through this crisis. And they're the type of things we talked about in income. In terms of ownership, we're the, very much of the view that, as usual, what we learned from 2008, 2009, is that you heard the term banks are too big, big to fail, automotive companies are the, uh, the lifeblood of the US. And so the government went in and bankrolled them. And then when things got going, they basically left the debt on the public, uh, on the public balance sheet and, and basically went on their merry way and made profits. We've got to learn from that because what that leads to is austerity. Uh, and so we, we had a fundamental view is that, you know, don't bail out the essential sectors, bring them in, buy them, uh, and make certain that it's not just buying them. So the bringing them back into the commons and the areas we think we had great opportunity to do that. Uh, in the areas of interest to our unions, early childhood education. People talk about it being free at the moment. It's not free. It's just publicly provided by all of us, and that's something that could happen. That could also happen in energy. It could also help in the very areas of health and care. And what we mean by ownership is not just bring them back into public ownership, but actually change the nature of how they're governed. So make certain that workers, uh, workers are on those boards. Workers reps actually have a say about the governance of those of those companies. The last thing um, is about investment, and you'll see that the government actually responded to this crisis in a way that was completely at odds with what they believe in. So as a result, they were completely at sea about what they were doing. Seventy to eighty percent of everything they've done has been directed at business, i.e., trying to put sticky tape on this old clapped-out banger uh, of a system. Uh, whereas our view is, uh, if we're going to have investment, let's, let's invest in the interests of the next generation. Let's invest in new sources of energy, uh, new sources of energy. Let's use the crisis, uh, to confront the climate crisis that we just came out of summer. At the moment, the earth is getting a breather because the human virus is actually has to isolate itself at the moment. But let's just make certain that when we do go into a new phase, we invest around things that can actually create a sustainable uh, future. A number of key things that drive our thinking about this, uh, and everyone will approach it differently, and, and we want to build alliances across the board, but we've been organising workers in this country that haven't had the rights of citizenship, but work here, pay taxes, contribute to our country, uh, and, and a good a good people part of the, the very fabric of us. Uh, and so we've got migrant workers in the fields making certain that our fresh food gets to us. We've got visa workers. We've got undocumented workers, uh, all as a result of a capricious way that we actually regulate our borders in this country. So we want to make certain that we stand in solidarity with them and that we actually, when we talk about no one being left behind and that we're all in this together, that our responses are universal. And so we started from that position and we've sought to organise as best we can around those issues. Fundamentally, our workers at our facilities, we've worked very hard in ECEC. We've got a six-step plan where we put it on most childcare centres that, that we protect our workers there. So there are temperature checks. Uh, there are all sorts of mechanisms we go through 
Uh, and if the, if the child gets, uh, sent out, or the education center doesn't agree, uh, we're encouraging our people to walk off the job until that's done because we've got to look after people. Likewise, in, in logistics and the supply chain, uh, we've got some employers who really are in a rush to make a lot of money. Some of our big retailers are like that. Uh, we've had, not this week, but the uh, week before last, uh, across Melbourne and, and Sydney, we had over 10 sites just walk off the job until we got things fixed. One of them was at one of our biggest warehouses out here in the west of Melbourne, uh, a, Coles, a Coles facility, uh, and it was out there in Laverton. For eight hours, we held that place up. Uh, and it was interesting that the Coles response was to try and get members of, uh, uh, of the main political parties to ring the union. Uh, our view is that uh, workers won on that day uh, and we weren't going to be intimidated because their safety was important. They won the necessary things that they needed to have in terms of spacing, in terms of hand sanitizer, in terms of time to wash their hands. We winning that result that day, that strike has meant that we've flowed those standards throughout the entire sector. So I think our activity uh, has been pretty good, but you know, like everyone, we've been hamstrung because of this, of this lockdown and the fact that we're kind of, we're, we're collectively all together, but physically we're kind of separate at the moment. But what we've learned from it uh, is that we've been able to have some significant conversations with members like never before. We called a mass meeting of our members in the first week uh, and we had 2,400 people come onto a webinar like this and we had a great discussion about things. We've been doing that in each of our sectors and so we've spoken to tens and tens of thousands of people directly that we wouldn't have otherwise before this crisis. So we've learned a lot of things. Uh, we also learned about talking, letting forums run, that we've got workplace leaders who are given the space to run on their issues with the union support that we actually can win some things. So while this has been uh, an extraordinary time full of fear and uncertainty, uh, and I have to say on behalf of all the you know, workers' union officials, we're all going out of our heads, uh, not being able to get out and about as much as we like to. Uh, there's some good stuff that's coming out of this. We believe we are building a movement. We believe we're winning the ideological debate in the community. We believe we are pushing the issues, and we have lots of people, uh, like the people on this discussion tonight, but lots of people out of the country uh, who share who share similar values, and I think this is our time to really put pressure we know that the government and we know the conservative forces never waste the crisis. They're getting geared up to crack into workplace rights right now. They're getting geared up to move the cost of this uh, crisis onto individuals. They want to they want to privatise the cost of this. Uh, the fact that they're forcing workers to dip into their own superannuation is another way of privatising this dispute uh, of this crisis. We need to find ways to push back on that. Uh, so. It's been an, it's been a difficult time. The struggle is on, uh, but we found a lot of energy through this period of time. So I was just glad to share a few ideas about who we are, what we're fighting for at the moment, and some of the little successes we've had. So I'll finish up there soon. Doesn't really matter how old you are or what sex you are, where you work. You know, you should be standing up for your rights have a situation where employees can come along with an agreement that actually does undermine award conditions but in a way that can still pass um, a legal test. With you by 
my side. Our members do the job not just because they want to get paid, but because they're committed to the work, but they're exploited in that. So we're fighting for what is fair. Thanks, thanks, Tim. That was much shorter than you needed to be, <laughs> but there's plenty of time for discussion. So we'll, um, I'm going to pass over now to David Ball. And if comrades remember, David's in the MUA. So over to you, David. Hi, everyone. Thank you for your time tonight. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and their uh, elders past and present. Um, yeah, I, obviously I'm from the Maritime Union. I guess um, the makeup of your membership and the makeup of your workplaces sort of has a impact on how you deal with issues and how issues are dealt with both through the company and through your membership. So, you know, I'm sure you're aware that we have a very high-density membership, you know, up above 95%. At the moment the companies are coming to the union to negotiate with us and um, consult us with regards to um, not leaving any workers behind and keep getting it, keep making sure that everyone can continue to earn a living. So I've been spending all my days uh, on Zoom as well, speaking to different companies on how we can do that. Um, one of the things that has become a lot more difficult is right of entries. Um, Tim mentioned, you know, the health crisis has become an economic crisis. I, I think that couldn't be more true. And mm. my whole, although at the start of the crisis, we were dealing with putting measures in place to keep our workers safe from um, spreading the virus and keeping everybody at work. Um, it's certainly gone from that to, you know, talking about health issues to just talking about economic issues, and that is absolutely filling my day. And I actually spent seven or eight hours on a Zoom meeting today, and I don't think health or uh, the spread of the, the virus was mentioned once, to be honest. It was all about putting measures in place to protect the company's profit and loss statement, obviously from the union's perspective, to keep workers um, earning an income without uh, going through too much pain. We have had a couple of um, a couple of, couple of small businesses laid off, only very small ones. At the moment, we've managed to keep everybody employed to a certain level, although it feels like we're just uh, warming up as to where that's going to lead. Um, certainly the doom and gloom that was given to me today by the bulk and general industry in our industry, which is the bulk and general industry for us is anything that doesn't fit in a container is uh, on the dive down and that includes cars. Apparently nobody's going to be buying cars during the, during the mm -hmm. crisis. Um, yeah, sales are meant to be down by up to 50% or well, the ships bringing cars into Australia will be down by 50%, which is a, is a lot of um, volume for our industry. Uh, I, I'm sure you're all aware with the Ruby Princess, um, that was that was pretty shameful situation in Australia. Um, at the end, in the end of the day, the South Coast Labor Council, the ITF, and the MUA did a pretty good job in looking after those international seafarers. Unfortunately, uh, it it wasn't great, and it's it just goes to show you how difficult it is for international seafarers. 
And that is a part of a, a, an issue that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, and that includes Australian seafarers and their ability to join ships and not join ships. Initially, at the start of this um, crisis, we had companies coming to us requesting that seafarers stay on their ships for a lot longer than they normally would. Our seafarers normally do between four and six-week swings. Um, Woodside actually came to us and asked us if we could leave our seafarers on vessels for up to three months. Now, obviously, that's totally unacceptable. We uh, we still have problems trying to get our seafarers off vessels at the moment, um, but generally speaking, we are winning that battle. If you need to go to Western Australia to join a vessel or to join a job, you need to go and spend 14 days in a hotel there in isolation before you can join your vessel. So that obviously adds a couple of extra weeks to your um, your working program, which makes things more difficult for everybody. Um, the company that's probably going through the most pain here in Victoria and Tassie is TT Line. They have no passengers at all at the moment. Tassie's nearly closed down completely. If you can keep them away from those wild parties they keep having up there in Devonport. But um, there's no passengers at all on the TT line vessels. So they've only got freight. So um, we're trying to negotiate a situation there to keep everyone employed. Unfortunately, the casuals are basically not working at all. Uh, the permanent part-time workers... We have an arrangement there where they get 91 days work a year because the year had been going quite well. Most of those workers had worked over 91 days. So technically they're not laid down and the company has no further obligation for them until June 30th, but they're not working either. And the permanent workforce are working 25% of the time than they would normally work. So, and you know, they're using their leave to supplement their income where possible. Um, you know, obviously different people have different uh, expenses in life so they can use that their leave to uh, supplement their income in different ways. But uh, it's a pretty difficult situation there. With um, the towage industry, we uh, represent a couple of tugboat companies that have mem- – we have membership in over 40 ports around Australia. We just spent the last eight months negotiating an EBA, a national EBA, with one particular company – we were at least eight months of negotiations and up about four weeks ago they put a proposal to us that they wanted to freeze all our salary, have a rollover of the current agreement for two years and freeze all our salary. So, you know, we negotiated quite a lot of things and a lot of those things were cost neutral to the company, but they just used the virus, uh, the situation to just remove all those, um, you know, everything that we gained and, basically whack us over the head with the virus and that's what it seems like a lot of companies are doing. I'm sure a lot of you uh, read about the dispute we had at DP World. That was very early on when the virus was going on, when it wasn't clear as to how we were meant to deal with people that hadn't been in isolation for 14 days or quarantine for 14 days. At the time when uh, our workforce decided not to uh, discharge that vessel due to health and safety reasons. There was no clear directions from any of the government departments as to how we were meant to deal with these vessels. They'd only been dealing with the um, cruise ship vessels. At no point had the health department or border force addressed stevedores or vessels other than cruise ships. So that created a difficult situation for us. Um, unfortunately, the company has responded very aggressively and 
over five shifts, around 120 workers um, refused to work in unsafe conditions, so they've all received written warnings. Five people have been suspended on pay. Um, we're currently lobbying the state government and the federal government to come out and, and you know, say to DP World, you need to drop those um, those charges and drop those warnings and bring those people back to work. And we're hoping something will come about that. In that particular situation, WorkSafe were not much help at all. Um, but we did have a win recently with WorkSafe with the tugboat industry here in uh, Melbourne as a safety requirement, you need to have two tugs available 24 hours a day for emergency reasons. Um, if you're working on one of those two tugs, your shift is classified as captive, so that you have to be on the tug for the for the duration of your shift, which is two 12-hour shifts. Um, due to the COVID-19 situation, our HSRs did a risk assessment and decided it wasn't safe for them. You know, it wasn't ideal for the membership to be on the tugs during the whole 12 hours, and so they developed a system where they would get to the tugs as soon as possible if an emergency situation arose. Um, the harbour master had different ideas. He he wanted uh, the tugs to be captive, and the company wanted the tugs to be captive, and so they uh, put together a risk assessment and ordered the workers back to work, back to the captive situation. Uh, the members then put two pin notices on the company, and WorkSafe actually came down and ruled in favour of the workers, and which was absolutely extraordinary and a good win for us. Um, as I said earlier, the bulk and general uh, industry that we deal with is anything that doesn't fit in a container. It's, it's going right downhill, and at the moment we're, we're looking at putting in measures, again, people to use their own leave to supplement their income, um, we're up for all sorts of ideas on how we can keep everybody getting some sort of income, but it, it is quite difficult at the moment. Um, yeah, the JobKeeper allowance, uh, that's really confusing as to who's eligible and who's not. Um, you sit down with these companies and they give you profit and loss statements and explain how badly they're going, and then all of a sudden they're not eligible for the JobKeeper's allowance because their volumes haven't decreased enough. So there's a bit of contradiction there. Unfortunately, if you're a uh, TT line, those workers are state government employees. It's a state government business, so they're not eligible. Um, we continue to lobby that that uh, the board of directors there and the management there and saying, you know, why aren't they looking for assistance in, in other directions from the state government, from the federal government? Um, they don't seem to be getting any at the moment. Uh, it's really frustrating and difficult and a lot of our membership don't look like they're going to be eligible for the JobKeeper's Allowance, so that's pretty frustrating. Um, yeah, I think I've just about covered most of our industry. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks. This is an important day because it's about standing up for workers' rights, for justice, for fairness. I don't care what colour someone's skin is, I don't care what language they speak, and I don't care where in the world they came from, because we as workers have got to stand up for every worker having the right to justice and fairness. And every person that arrived in this country, no matter how they got here, no matter where they came from, having the right to be treated with respect and dignity. 
Listen up, you're tuned to 855 Community Radio 3CR for May Day. Today we're celebrating as workers everywhere remember the proud past and push ahead to build a strong future. Keep tuned to 3CR and supporting May Day. Everyone finishing early tonight, <laughs> but that's fascinating. Let's go to a diametrically different industry. Um, not that um, some of you don't have admin workers, but certainly teachers and education generally. So um, Helen, Helen's going to take over here, um, speaking from Charles Sturt University. Thank you, Helen. All right. Thank you, Sue. Um, and I would like, before I begin, to um, extend solidarity to the Radjuri people where I live um, and to Elders past, present and emergency and knowledge that we are meeting on stolen land. Um, so it, I've kind of put this together, assuming limited information among some of you. Some of you I know are very familiar. In fact, we've got NTU members on the call who know all about this and then others who don't. So apologies to those who have heard some of this before. Um, but for those who haven't had a lot to do with the higher education sector, we think of it as a kind of public sector sort of thing. And, and while it is still majority of public sector, uh, it is majority public sector, there has been massive encroachments and privatisation um, over the years and it's become incredibly corporatised and higher education, you might have thought of, all of us like to think of it as being um, a public good, is very much now, uh, you know, conducted and, and uh, operated as a, economically as a... Um, a for-profit kind of uh, sector. So uh, there has been a running down and an underfunding of public universities for many years, and that's led to massive underinvestment in a really critical sector that, of course, um, trains essential workers and professionals and uh, has a whole bunch of researchers trying to solve the most pressing environmental, technological, economic and social problems of our age. Uh, so we're trying to do that in the context of massive underinvestment, privatisation and massive casualisation as well. I think it's one of the most casualised sectors in the economy. Um, today, the, the average uh, university worker uh, is, is probably not what most people outside the sector think of as sort of academics, you know, privileged academics. Um, today, that kind of group of secure or relatively secure, higher paid academic only comprise 30% of the workforce. The average uh, university worker today is female and is an, in an insecure academic or administrative job, such as a casual teacher or, um, you know, administrative auxiliary type work. Um, so it's a very different workforce to what the popular perceptions of the sector actually um, um, what it is. So the other thing is we're dealing uh, with the coalition government with a um, you know, a political force that has a very reactionary and elitist view of higher education. It's become even more apparent, if it wasn't already, during this crisis that they appear to be hell-bent on smashing the sector. They have about as much concern for the future of higher education as they had for the future of manufacturing when that all, you know, was abandoned by the government all those, all those years ago. Um, and a very kind of hell-bent on seeing this sort of shrunken, even 
even smaller um, public higher education system. Um, there's talk coming out of our union about employers and the coalition would be very happy to see a situation where we only have one or two universities per state or territory, which of course means dramatic decline in access, particularly in regional and more remote areas, um, as well as a much, a much smaller number of places um, potentially available uh, for students um, of working and middle class families. So there's a whole bunch of equity implications of that. Um, most universities have short, sought to plug that funding shortfall in the public sector or from the public sector by selling higher education enrolments um, to international fee-paying students, which has, of course, turned out to be the massive Achilles heel of the sector during the pandemic because of, because of COVID. So we're now looking at a $5 billion hole in the sector. Um, speculation is that they, it will result in, without attention or funding, it will result in 20000 uh, job losses plus casual. So that's just from the permanent sector of the workforce, which, as I said, is in many cases um, the minority of the workforce. So plus casual workers. They're expecting um, mass stand downs to start in universities such as La Trobe and elsewhere on May 1st, ironically. And um, we're already seeing a lot of our casual and camp where shutdowns have occurred because uh, most of us are now working from home and have been for feels like years, but weeks and uh, perhaps into the months now. Um, so there's already a lot of people losing work already. On the flip side, um, those who have been, we've had a massive intensification of work from those who uh, have been forced to switch, like school kids, the school system, switch their courses from on campus to online. Um, the government's position is that, it, as I said, it is basically ideologically opposed to supporting the sector. There's no funding package, despite what was announced a couple of weeks ago. That was really just continuing funding. It doesn't plug the hole at all. There's no access to JobKeeper for any of our workers, and they have no. Um, there's no support to retain international students as a source of um, revenue and, of course, the contribution they make to our society as well. Um, so that's kind of the context that we're in. Uh, as far as the union, I'm probably going to concentrate a bit more on what's happening within the union than, than Tim and um, David were talking about because there's been a lot of public attention to the union. So a um, bit of context for the NTU. Look, the union, unfortunately, we can't boast those kind of figures that David was talking about. In fact, we're probably at the complete other end of the spectrum. Um, our union membership has really been decimated, um, particularly since work choices and the, what was called the Hewards, which was, you know, a real attack on higher education uh, workforce conditions. Um, and we've never really recovered. In fact, we've continued to decline in membership and power since then. Um, so we're at quite a weak point at the moment in our history. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. In my view, we've been way too slow to respond um, to that, those destructive forces to the point that it was really only last year and even late last year when the National Council moved that we need to change direction in terms of our organising approaches. Um, so, you know, many of us would have said the writing was on the wall a lot sooner than that, but it, it's taken a long time for national leadership for a new direction. <clears throat> The um, situation with the changes to the access period, so the, the for enterprise agreements, I suppose most of you know, employers now only need to give um, employed workers a day's notice. They want to vary agreements. <coughs> Excuse me. And so that significantly, most of our workers are on enterprise agreements. 
Um, that is a, a key threat at the moment. Some universities like UNSW, University of New South Wales, has already called for widespread voluntary cuts to wages and conditions um, and taking of leave, uh, et cetera. While at the same time, um, as I indicated, there's mass stand-downs being uh, signalled for May 1st um, at La Trobe uh, University and elsewhere. And then other universities like Deakin are talking about mass retrenchments because of the loss of revenue. And even the VCs, who are normally pretty pro-government, um, have been pretty have been sort of you know ranting at the government for turning their back on the sector. Um, so this is the context that we find ourselves. In, in the NTU, trying to minimise the damage. I mean, it's sort of inevitable there's going to be job losses, cuts to wages and conditions, um, or at least it seems that way. And we're in a point of relative historic weakness as a union and only really just starting to turn that around when the bushfires and then COVID hit. Um, so our priorities in terms of what's then in that context, what's transpired is that the union is or our union is trying to focus on what can we do to protect. So some of the questions Dave was mentioned, what can we do to protect workers um, who are basically going to be on the dole? Um, and their focus has been on at the national level and the members the uh, and the universities most impacted and some of them perhaps like UNSW talking about being at risk of insolvency. So you know, whether that's exaggerated, I don't have the inside running on that, but, you know, basically that our institutions are at risk of completely falling over in some cases. Um, so in that context, um, members have been debating quite publicly of late whether or not we need to, we as a workforce need to make sacrifices to wages or concessions to wages and conditions under very tightly union-controlled circumstances basically as an act of solidarity to those workers who are looking at being stood down and ending up on the dole. Um, so this is the, in a sense, this, it's in the spirit of leaving no worker behind, but the way they've gone about it has been highly controversial. Um, so if we can at least, uh, if we, even if we allow benefit of the doubt that it began in the spirit of trying to support our most vulnerable workers, um, National Executive has acknowledged the way they went about it um, was pretty shonky, uh, to say the least. It's caused a massive backlash and motions being put at branches all across the country, um, condemning them and censuring them for what uh, the National Executive, for how they handled that, uh, in respect to failing to consult with the rank and file before entering negotiations with employers, failures of communication since then, and inadequacy, some call failures of uh, campaigning strategy to accompany the negotiations which, of course, is difficult uh, in the context of self-isolation. But nonetheless, the crit criticism has been that not enough was done and it wasn't creative enough. And so some of the things that Tim had to say, I think <laughs> our leadership could probably take some lessons from um, in terms of creativity and innovation. So the, um, the negotiations, just a little bit of the detail, um, we don't, they're still ongoing. They're not finalised. We don't know the final details, which makes it hard to critique them at this particular point, but um, we are anticipating if a negotiated outcome is reached, we're calling it a National Jobs Protection Framework, um, it should be within the next week, given that the stand-downs look like they'll start in large numbers next week. So there's significant pressure there. Um, not all bosses are on board with it, though, um, but I won't get into that. I'm happy to answer some more questions about that later if people want. Um, basically, what they're trying to negotiate or bargain for is um, a guarantee of a living wage for stood-down workers who aren't eligible, as I said, for JobKeeper, preferential rec 
recruitment of casual and fixed-term staff who may have lost contracts or work during the pandemic. Um, restrictions on restructuring, which is a massive threat I mentioned earlier, including at my own university, um, and an in significant increase in union powers. Um, what the bosses want um, is deferral of pay rises, reduced hours of work, stronger rights to take uh, leave, for direct people to take leave. Uh, and it isn't being talked about in the National Council of our union, but, you know, a lot of us are very pretty confident that the bosses are also push, pushing for wage cuts to existing uh, income levels. Um, the NTU has said that they will insist if there are any concessions, it will be in the context of an NTU verified um, evidence of institutional uh, or financial distress. So at each university, they have to justify um, any concessions as a trigger. The reductions would need to be proportional to the distress being incurred at each institution, and they'd be scaled in a way that would protect the lowest paid workers within our sector. So they would be least hit. The highest paid pay, make the biggest concessions, basically. Um, and that these, these arrangements would be time limited. There's debate about what that means, of course. Um, so at National Council, uh, just last Friday, there was 85% vote in favour uh, of the negotiations continuing. So not on the actual outcome, because we don't have one just yet. Um, but the resistance across the country to any concessions um, is quite palpable. There's massive, you know, goes without saying in industrial relations, massive distrust of the bosses to, to um, keep up their end of the bargain, even if it is uh, codified in the EA. Uh, we've learnt today the New South Wales Public Sector Association is opposed to any concessions. They would, they would campaign to vote against any local variations to agreements, union mediated or otherwise. Um, the general, you know, uh, the resistance has really been around um, that the, the package isn't going to protect jobs. It's that the union has caved in too, too soon or shouldn't have at all, of course, without a proper campaign. Um, that you know, the situation we're in is a result of long-term failures of the governments and employers and should not be foisted upon workers, as sort of to some of Tim's points. Um, and, you know, even in my own branch, however, it, we are very divided as a union at the moment, notwithstanding that 85% vote. In my branch, it's really 50-50. People feel very strongly one way or another. You know, some of them are really strongly, we absolutely should stand in solidarity and the others are absolutely, we're not giving the bosses a free kick. So it's it's quite divided. Um, so I guess ultimately, you know, the kind of narrative that we've been talking about it within the Alliance is about who should be really paying and ultimately that should be um, in the view, I think, in the view of our, you know, our organisation and many workers, I tested this out locally, that it should be the, the rich. The income taxes on the rich need to be increased. The profiteering that's going on that we're all alluding to, corporate profits, we need to be taxing those, the super profits, to um, fund the crisis response measures. And, of course, ultimately, though, we need quite a new system, as, uh, as Tim was alluding to. How am I going for time, Sue? You've got about a minute to go, Helen. All right. Look, I just wanted to say a couple of things about internally then to finish on. As I indicated, we've got some real challenges in terms of our internal strengths. We've got a lot of work to do. We've only just begun it. We're doing some really important or taking some really important lessons from international education unions who have 
transform themselves from being weak like we are at the moment comparatively to really powerful unions uh, making big changes. So we're trying to model our, our revitalisation uh, on a lot of those lessons, a different sort of organising approach, which I'm happy to answer more about in questions. But I think the key takeaways are that, yes, we need a stronger, more participatory campaign. There's been some campaigning efforts, but it's very top-heavy. Um, Rank-and-file participation is pretty much sidelined, apart from some fairly token things. Um, so we need a much stronger campaign, but I would argue that, you know, the strongest campaign design in the world, really the strength comes from the workers. And I guess to David's point, it goes to the strength of our unions and our organising, um, which needs bucket loads of work. You know, we really need to be honest about that. Um, even if National Executive had to come out and said we run a run, want to run a really strong campaign, you know, I'm not sure how we would have delivered on that, to be honest. Um, but I think that members should have at least been given the opportunity, which they were denied, um, and drawing on the expertise and creativity of our rank and file to be part of the discussion about how we build a strong campaign from the position and the context that we are in. We need to make the bosses pay, not the workers, um, and we need to redouble our efforts on, on organising. I have a bit more to say on that, but I might come back to it in questions if that's okay. Um, that's probably enough for now. Thank you. We will be back. Something that you feel right in your... All right. Okay. Right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, it is hopefully um, 8 a.m. or close to 7:50 a.m. or maybe a bit, bit. Yeah, I don't know what the. Um, we'll, we'll see what the kind of date time is um, when I put this all together. Um, but now it is actually time for the activist calendar. And even in the age of COVID-19, um, there's still a lot of political events coming up. Um, in fact, there's almost a bit too many. In fact, I'm feeling sort of slightly burnt out on online meetings, but it seems like every single little group is doing um, online meetings. Um, and um, in fact, you know, what's sort of interesting is workers are kind of reported um, being sort of overworked with, um, in, depending on the industry, with online meetings, especially if you're we say work in the university. Anyway, the first um, forum I'd like to announce that is um, coming up um, is there's going to be a public forum, Refugee Racism is a Health Risk, Defend the Right to Protest. Um, and this will be happening on Monday, um, May the 4th at 6.30pm and will be held online via Zoom. Um, to get the registration link um, to be part of the meeting, I would recommend going on the Refugee Action Collective Facebook page or check out their website. There will also be um, a, a live stream and a public forum organised by Victorian Socialists about socialist response um, to um, the COVID-19 crisis, and that's going to be happening on Tuesday, um, the May May the, um the 5th um, at 6.30. And if you would like to be part of the forum, it's just going to be a live stream as far as I know. And the live stream is going to be um, directly from the Victorian Socialist page on Facebook. So that is Tuesday, May the 5th um, on uh, at 6.30. Org and it's a public forum organised by Victorian Socialists. The next um, kind of event um, I'd like to highlight is there's going to be a public forum um, organised by Socialist Alliance and Green Left, um, core, um, about health workers on the front lines, um, health workers fighting back. And that's going to be on Tuesday, the 12th of May at 6.30pm 
Um, and if you want to be part of the forum, I would recommend going to um, the Green Left or the Socialist Alliance Facebook pages or even the Green Left website to let, get the details for the Zoom meeting. And then finally, the last forum I'd like to announce, um, there's going to be a public forum, um, the Kurdish Freedom Struggle and the COVID-19 Crisis, um, featuring a range of um, speakers from the Kurdish community uh, about how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting on the Kurdish struggle, freedom um, struggle. And that's happening on Thursday, May the 14th at 6.30pm. Um, um, if you'd like to get the Zoom link, I would recommend going to the Australians for Kurdistan Facebook page or the website or even Rojava Solidarity in Sydney. And the other thing I'd like to announce is if you happen to be listening um, live um, and you live in Sydney, there is going to be a car convoy um, um, organised by in uh, on on this Friday um, today on Friday, um, and it's going to. I think the timing. I'm not completely sure. I think it might be at like 11 a.m. or 1 p.m. Um, but I think you have to RSVP or um, check the Facebook rent. Anyway, if you check um, the May the first. Um, Facebook page or even check the Green Left um, um, Facebook page because we are listing it, um, you'll be able to get details um, for that um, event. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll, put, I'll play a quick announcement and we might move on to the rest of our program. Guts, those workers just keep standing up and standing up. 3CR, the voice of struggle. 8.55 on the AM band. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music Matters. Who the hips is the hop show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, and for the last part of our program, um, we're going to be playing a recording of, um, of a speech that was given um, by an NTU Melbourne University activist um, named Aneta Haria, who is speaking about the fight back um, um, that uh, National Territory education members are, are waging in terms of fighting for proper working conditions and against the government cuts of the government. And this was taken from a public forum um, that was organised by university workers on Thursday, um, the 23rd of April. So, yeah, hope you enjoy. Thanks, Jonathan. And I just want to say thank you for hosting this discussion, um, Jonathan, Charlene, Helen, Jeremy, a few others, um, and for inviting everyone to the forum. 
I think if anything good has come out of this crisis is that we are now connecting across so many different activist groups um, in our union. It's just really fantastic to see the sense of community that's really come out. Um, and I'd also, um, before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on stolen land. Um, I'm actually calling from Melbourne, so I pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to their elders past, present, and emerging. And also pay my respects to all the different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and nations represented on the call today. Um, so as Jonathan said, I'm at University of Melbourne. Um, I work as a professional staff member and I work in research strategy. And um, I um, I think I have a lot of different union positions um, on the branch, on National Council, uh, Convener Casuals Network. But I suppose I really see myself rooted in um, organizing and mentoring delegates and activists and always trying to engage new members and hearing things that they have to say. Um, so just in response to um, the question, which is really around charting a progressive course through the crisis, I just wanted to talk about a couple of things. Um, so first, I wanted to say that I agree with so many of the speakers already that uh, we need to continue the campaign focus on the federal government. And that campaign means leaving no worker behind, um, means actually having funding and saving higher ed jobs. And um, I agree with Nelson, let's go hardcore. Um, but I also think that means uh, engaging our members in very creative ways. And so I really, I'll probably be following up with you, Helen, about some of the things that you've been doing um, around phone banking. Because I think we really could do quite a lot more um, around pushing the federal government Dan Tehan is going on Q&A on Monday. Anyone want to join me on the live stream? Just putting up some shit that, you know, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's actually do it. Um, so I think really that is a, a big focus. And I just wanted to just, um, call out, cause we've talked, been talking quite a lot about, um, uh, you know, the drop in international student revenue and our over-reliance, um, on international student fees. But I, I really actually just would like to reframe that to say that it's really the lack of public funding um, that has that has led us to um, focus on student revenue. So I really think that that needs to be oh, the way we frame it actually is really quite important um, that we're framing this as an issue focused on the, the um, neoliberal university model, which is broken. It's been broken before the pandemic. We see all the faults now. We see all the cracks now. And it's not really it's not a blame on international students. Um, I'm also very much involved with our international students and um, and raising their voices as well, because many of them are members and they are casualized as well. Um, and the second thing I wanted to say that I think is really important in terms of a progressive course is that we have a very uh, member led movement. And so um, certainly the shift um, into organizing, as um, Helen already brought up uh, around, uh, you know, the focus on a Jane McElavey uh, type of approach with organizing. I mean, we've taken that up um, at the University of Melbourne for the past year and a half in our campaigns. They're grassroots, they're focused on the workplace, they're member run and led. That um, we also um, focus on their strengths as a union, that it's not just negotiating that is going to get us through this, but it's actually organized union power. Um, as a side note as well, I was on a call uh, that the ACTU had a few nights ago for activists, 
And they talked about how, um, you know, they wanted to get activists together to, you know, the first enterprise, the first um, business that actually uses this enterprise um, ag- agreement variation that's been put through in terms of 24 hours they can call a vote. Um, you know, activists should swarm and, you know, post and phone call and really hit that that um, that particular um, enterprise first or university. Whoever whoever uses that first is going to get um, really get hit hard. And that is the power of the union movement. I felt so much better after that call because I thought to myself, University of Melbourne is not going to put themselves first. Like or, you know, like that actually would strike quite a lot of fear. And so when I, we talk about member led unions, it's also about the union power as a movement and not just the MTU. We have so many allies. Um, and so the third thing I think I, I wanted to say around a progressive course through this crisis is around transparency and accountability. And as Alison has already touched on, it's, um, it's how our universities are, are, are um, it's not just the issue about their financing and the lack of public funding, but it's also the way they have been spending their money on capital works, on all sorts of silly strategies. And instead of actually it's, you know, it's staff and workers. Um, and so um, we, I just wanted to just say as well, um, just a little bit about University of Melbourne's campaigns, which have been really casual focused the past year. Uh, we have really focused on um, all of our campaigns on the big picture, and that's we want dignity of work because that is lacking in any worker that is casualized. They they are not treated like an essential worker, even though, as we see now, the essential workers right now are the casualized workers. Um, but we want we want dignity of work. We want fair pay, and we want secure jobs. And we've had some huge wins around wage theft and fair pay um, and really being included in terms of dignity of work and being felt like people are part of, of the university. And so we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we're still fighting for secure jobs right now. Um, as Allison said, it's really uncharted waters for everyone. And actually that headcount of 20,000 in our sector is FTE. So if we think about headcount, that's quite a lot more, and that's going to be our insecure workers, both fixed term and and casual. Um, so, so that said, um, I just wanted to say something around um, casual networks, which are you know across the country at different branches. Um, but you know, to be honest, um, casual networks, we don't really want to save casual jobs. Uh, casual workers want to eliminate casualization. We want secure jobs. And so if this is our shock doctrine moment right now and what we're seeing in our um, IR frameworks and all of the other terrible things that are happening with our with our sector and our government, I also think we should push back and ask for what we want. And we want dignity work. We want fair pay. We want secure jobs. And so I would actually push back on the job protection framework and how push back to, to really ask, like, how is that actually going to save um, casual jobs or insecure jobs? Um, we've already seen casuals, um, casual workers losing uh, work throughout this semester. Um, and I think that the members, as Helen has mentioned, really, really do want to get involved and really want to put up a fight because they're quite frankly, um, uh, it's, it's going to be a long fight. And we really, for our new members, we need to engage them. Um, but we also need to reimagine our university. So um, I think I heard um, time <laughs> somewhere. So I just wanted to end 
really quickly and just um, just put up this quick slide. I hope everyone can see that. But this is a few motions from different um, casuals networks that have come out to say we want to keep fighting. This is RMIT. This is Monash. This is Latrobe University of Melbourne. You know, I don't have to put them up, but these are actually the casuals that are saying we want to fight back. Don't um, don't give up your paying conditions for us. Defend your pay and conditions for us. You know, stand up against um, you know in solidarity. Stand up for maintaining class size, reducing um, you know refuse to take on work stripped from casual staff. Again, the workload issue that we know is already existing at the universities. Defend your research time and leave entitlement. So uh, I I just want to end with that because I know there's quite a lot of um, casuals. Uh, Anyway, that, um, that, um, that brings us to the end of our program. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in, um, in this period and, um, stay tuned for next week. And I think Beyond Zero Emissions is meant to follow following this. Yes. Thanks, thanks for tuning everyone. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.